Well, let's give this a whirl. Welcome back to the RZ Podcast. Today I want to walk through Wittgenstein's lecture on ethics. Wittgenstein wrote an interesting lecture on ethics presented at the a place called the Heretics Society in Cambridge in 1929, wherein he essentially argued that ethics don't exist, at least not in the common way we understand ethics. The Heretic Society was founded by a guy named Charles K. Ogden and involved sort of non-conformist people questioning the general accepted way of seeing things, apparently not only in society, but also uh, religious dogmas in particular, which will start to make sense when we see Wittgenstein casting a very skeptical eye towards ethics and draws into doubt the religious discourse regarding ethics having any efficacy. Not only efficacy, but also that entire dialogue perhaps lacking any true content and only engaging sort of similes to actual facts of reality, but not having any correlate to which we might attain knowledge through the use of our reason, language, experience, etc. So before diving into deep, I have an academic impulse, which I don't think is necessarily a bad one, but simply to note that I am not a Wittgenstein scholar. Again, I've read some Wittgenstein, I've studied philosophy, but uh, in terms of an in-depth knowledge and analysis of his work and the various references and influence, I am only somewhat aware of, and therefore we're going to be looking at his lecture on ethics and trying to understand the argument it's presenting in itself and not and try not to veer too much into Wittgenstein's entire life work. Not that I won't relate that to some of it, but I think it's better to look at the argument contained in these few pages. But I do a couple a little personal note. Wittgenstein is kind of an eccentric guy in philosophy, in terms of philosophy. He's kind of like that, uh, some kind of guy at a bar that you meet that might be brilliant or might be just off the deep end or drunk off his ass. Let me give one example, which is somewhat humorous. In his preface to what is probably his most famous work, his Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, he writes, The truth of the thoughts communicated here seems to me unassailable and definitive. I am, therefore, of the opinion that the problems have in essentials been finally solved. And if I am not mistaken in this, then the value of this work, secondly, consists in the fact that it shows how little has been done when these problems have been solved. End quote. Now, as far as philosophy goes, this is quite a ballsy quote. He's basically saying, yeah, I essentially solved the problems of philosophy. Maybe others can work out off of this, but it's a done deal. And even more radically, in a way, he is discrediting much of the work that has taken place in philosophy. He is sort of an anti-philosophy philosopher in this aspect. And this sort of anti-philosophy approach fits well within the lecture on ethics, which we will start to get into here. He commences 
the electron ethics by quoting another philosopher saying that ethics is essentially the inquiry into that which is good as sort of a means of setting the stage. And then he proceeds to say the following. Now I am going to use the term ethics in a slightly wider sense, in a sense, in fact, which includes what I believe to be the most essential part of that which is generally called aesthetics. End quote. I want to table this reference to aesthetics for now, but later we want to circle back to it as I think it is key in understanding this text as a whole, despite not referencing aesthetics ever again. And as a means to broaden the idea of ethics and show what he means, he he provides a bunch of synonyms for what he thinks could be substituted for the ethics being the study of the good. However, one curious side note, before he gives these synonyms, he says it's much like Galtron's composite portraits. Apparently, Galtron developed a method to create a composite of many faces basing the photograph on the eyes. And Wittgenstein mentions sharing a bunch of these synonyms to create a composite of what Galtron might use to reveal a typical Chinese face, is Wittgenstein's words there. And this might first sound innocuous, but actually this type of photography played a part in the eugenics movement, which would later play a part in Nazi Germany and determining the pure genes, or pure racial genes, I think. And also, while I'm on this side note, I looking into this briefly, it's interesting that, and worth mentioning, that the U.S. eugenists were actually quite influential on Nazi eugenics programs, which is just interesting and provides a larger picture of that time and some of the streams of thought going about it, as well as sometimes it's, it can be good to problematize the black and white character of the way history is often presented. And this isn't to say that Wittgenstein was on board with any of this, but it does reveal he being of his time and sort of that zeitgeist at the time being quite racialized under the rubric of, of science. But let's get back to the task at hand. So some of the synonyms he provides that can be substituted for the study of the good would be the valuable, the important, the meaning of life, what makes life worth living. These might serve as a way to paint a picture for what he thinks we say when we're talking about ethics. And what is important to Wittgenstein about those phrases, uh, synonyms, is that they are used in an absolute sense. And if you use those phrases in the normal course of life in many ways, they are not used in an absolute sense. He takes the example of a chair. Let's say I buy a new wingback chair for my office. It's comfortable. It's great. I say, hey, that's a good chair. And in saying that it is a good chair, I am saying that it serves the purpose of a preset standard for what a chair should be. Sturdy, comfortable, etc. And this is also relative. 
relative to that predetermined standard or also a predetermined goal. For instance, I might say he's a good guitarist, but I'm not saying he is the epitome of what is good in guitar playing. I am only saying that he is good in relation to what is accepted as skillful guitar playing. Another one that I think is is really good is saying that that's the right road. If I say that's the right road to Cincinnati, I am probably speaking of the quickest road, but that's only relative to the goal of arriving in Cincinnati in the most expeditious way. I might be wanting to take the scenic route to Cincinnati and see some of the backcountry, and then that would the quickest road would not be the right road in relation to that goal or relative to that goal to use that language of relative against absolute. And then he uses the example of sports, which I think is great to illuminate this. I, for instance, am not a good basketball player. I think it's fun to shoot hoops, but I'm not good. And if somebody I'm on the, let's say I'm on at the gym and somebody says, Hey, you know, you play pretty badly. I might say, yeah, you know, I do what I can. Just have fun. No problem with that. But if I am deceiving and cold and telling random lies to people that, that cause hurt, people might say, Hey, you're behaving badly. And if I said, yeah, you know, it's just what I do. I don't really, I don't really care. It's just kind of, you know, just for fun. People saying that I'm behaving badly is generally seen in an absolute sense. They don't say, oh, okay, like they would with the basketball. I just likes to have fun, but I doesn't have enough time to work on it, but that's just okay. Whereas the ethical expression presumes an absolute stance of that being incorrect. And incorrect because one might say, oh, you're behaving badly because that act is bad in all circumstances. And then he really starts to get into the thick of it because he says, every judgment of relative value is a mere statement of facts and can therefore be put in such a form that it loses all the appearance of a judgment of value. Going back to the best road to Cincinnati, it's relative to the goal of, it's just a fact, this is the right road or the best road to Cincinnati relative to my goal. And that has no ethical judgment. That's purely a fact. And that fact can be further clarified by unearthing what is presupposed in that question. That is, I want to get there as quickly as possible. And then I'm going to quote briefly again, kind of working off this because these are really key statements that he is setting out. He contends that all judgments of relative value can be shown to be mere statement of facts. No statement of fact can ever be or imply a judgment of absolute value. As a means of illustrating this, he uses an interesting example. He says, let's say that there were someone who knew all things and could describe everything that happened in the world, every stone that falls, every emotion by every human being, all these facts of the world would be in some huge book. Wittgenstein says, there would be no ethics in this book. It would be a mere description of facts. 
even something as horrific as murder would in this big book be just as significant as a stone falling because this book wouldn't be able to make a judgment whether this was good or bad insofar as it was just a description of what happened. And for Wittgenstein, words can only express facts and ethics is something supernatural or transcendent. It is it is making judgments or claims, descriptions that go beyond the facts and as such have no true content. So an ethical judgment about the best road to Cincinnati would have to mean that everyone upon seeing that road would say that is the best road, logically the best, and I cannot for any other reason find another one because that is the right road. If I say that is the right road using right in an ethical way, that would imply that everyone must see it as the right road regardless it would be a logical necessity. So he uses a couple examples as a means to elucidate what he means by this confusion of language present in ethical judgments. And he wants to take a, a personal example because he mentions in you know any investigation, you're going to try to take an example in order to make it concrete so that it can be analyzed in a particular sense instead of speaking in mere generalities. And so he uses the example of what he calls wondering at the existence of the world. Maybe we have this experience, we're sitting in a park and we see the blue sky, clouds. He doesn't really give a lot of content to this, but it seems to me that there might be experiences we have and we're just in in awe of the existence of something, whether it's a newly born child or the sky, a forest, the newest iPhone, hell if I know, but that the experience of wondering at the existence of the world, this sort of language use of incredulity at something in existence. He uses a phrase, for instance, how extraordinary that anything should exist, or how ex- how extraordinary in my examples that this new life could come into being, or that the sky could look so beautiful, the sunset could look like it does. And this is Probably not such a bad example. That's pretty common language that you hear about, you know, how incredible it is that something exists. And Wittgenstein says that this is nonsense, the way that we speak about these things. You know, I wonder at the existence of the world is incorrect, but to wonder at something being the case, a fact, is a correct use of language. A lot of his early philosophy had to do with the idea that philosophy should be primarily concerned with clarification, and any metaphysical discussions were nonsense in a lot of the same way that ethical ones were. And he takes a dog. I could wonder at the existence of a dog, a super large dog, because of that reference to the other facts of the world that most dogs are not as large as this dog in my theoretical example. And like I said, the sky, that would be this more metaphysical wondering at the existence of the world that there could even be such a thing as a sky. That's what he's talking about. Not wondering why the sky is blue today instead of cloudy. For to wonder at 
to wonder at the existence of the sky is nonsensical in that it would be saying that you're wondering at a tautology, that you're wondering at just the thing itself as the fact. And so that's a way of kind of demonstrating how language can often not be referring to anything that is the case, any fact, and that this type of speaking runs through all ethical and religious language. And I think a brief discourse of facts, which I maybe should have spelled out at the beginning, are for Wittgenstein something much different than, you know, the bullshit we hear in the news, like, this is this way and that's a fact, or people arguing over alternative facts. Facts are the fundamental way in which nature works in that the world is and might be described by language. And so it isn't so much of my own personal idea of what facts are, but rather what truly is. So then in this way, there is no miraculous to look at the world and the way language describes a world as being pure description of fact, that there can be no miraculous. And furthermore, if we use that language, it is seeing the world as miraculous. But you might say, well, maybe it is miraculous. This whole world thing is miraculous. But for Wittgenstein, that perhaps being somebody's opinion, you still need to reconcile your, yourself with the fact that the miraculous or expressions of what would be the absolute miraculous are, and he says, remain nonsense. So we can't actually speak of the miraculous in a sensical way when we truly dig through what we're saying when we say stuff about the ethical or the religious. And so essentially he talks about how the people who write on religion and ethics are essentially running against the boundaries of language that they cannot go beyond. But that is that impulse to push against those boundaries. And coming here to the end, I'm going to read the last couple sentences. Ethics, so far as it springs from the desire to say anything about the ultimate meaning of life, the absolute good, the absolute valuable, can be no science. What it says does not add to our knowledge in any sense. And then, finally, he says, but it is a document of a tendency in the human mind which I personally cannot help respecting deeply, and I would not, for my life, ridicule it. So this, to me, a couple things. I think we see that he is speaking about ethics being written as a systematic and scientific way that can be involved in proofs and that the language refers to something concrete of which only language can have a concrete referent in our experience. And so in this sense, there cannot be ethical language that goes beyond in the way that many ethical systems propose. And then I think this last line, when I first read this, I thought it's just kind of like this, maybe this joke, and I still kind of think it is, this kind of sarcasm, because he says, but it is a document, that is, 
ethics of a tendency in the human mind which I personally cannot help respecting deeply and would not for my life ridicule it. This to me sounds kind of like, oh yeah, I just spent this time arguing against this whole thing and how it is essentially referring to things in a nonsensical way. But of course, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't dare ridicule it. This seems totally a worthy thing. So I kind of think that that's this kind of almost, you know, philosopher's humor here at the end. So that's walking through the text itself. Sometimes when I'm in the middle of talking about it, I wonder if I'm actually making any sense at all. But going back to um, the beginning, uh, the first time that I read it, I wondered why aesthetics wasn't mentioned again. And I am convinced that this is key to understanding the text. To me, aesthetics is a slippery word. Slippery insofar as the moment I think I start to understand it, its meaning slips away, and I'm left with more questions. Notwithstanding, I'll plow ahead here. Where ethics has been the investigation of the good and the bad, aesthetics has been that investigation into the beautiful and the ugly. And etymologically, aesthetics refers to the perceived or apprehended. When thinking of the analysis of the beauty in, for instance, a work of art, we can see this connection to perception. And I think relating this to Wittgenstein's marrying ethics and aesthetics, it has to do with his description of good being relative to a certain predetermined standard. Let's take the example of asking the best route to Cincinnati. In this day and age, the predetermined standard does not have to do with safety, pleasurableness, simplicity, but with speed. If you had one of the aforementioned goals, you'd have to specify it, right? You'd have to say, oh, no, what is the best route to see the changing leaves on my way to Cincinnati? And therefore, in most ethical statements, beliefs, actions, etc., we are not speaking of an absolute, but that which is apprehended as such. So you could investigate the myriad of contributing elements that make something to be perceived as the good, as such, but that would be outside of the confines of this argument here. What I'm, what I'm meaning is that or one might investigate why certain values are perceived as such, as standard, all the contributing factors, but that would be then a larger and further investigation outside of the argument that's being made here. So Wittgenstein, I think, is he's rejecting the absolute claim of aesthetical assertions, and so, within the argument of this lecture, there can be no ethics in the proper sense. For all ethical statements dissolve into perceived ideas of the good, having no relation to any absolute. And any attempt to reach that crashes upon the rocks of what he would call the boundaries of language. One might ask, does this leave one in an ethical free-for-all? where there is no good or bad, right or wrong, no ethical determinations can be made? I don't think so. Specifically, relating back to the discussion of the aesthetics of ethics, in the sense that there are predetermined standards, they just can't be understood as absolute, but always relating to specifics. Relating to God, I don't think that Wittgenstein would propose any sort of atheism or theism, but rather it would not even be part of the question under which we might gain knowledge through the use of our language. 
And as such, it's not a reasonable topic. It's nonsensical as per the confines of language. Now, that might sound to some like a atheistic standpoint, but it is rather a philosophical position that seeks to understand language and the world in a way that is not miraculous and always relates to facts. And I want to now, in relation to this, talk about the opening of his Tractatus. He states that Die Welt ist alles, was der Fall ist. The world is everything that is the case. The world is the totality of facts, not of things. The world is determined by the facts, and by these being all the facts. For the totality of facts determines both what is the case and also all that is not the case. The facts in logical space are the world. The world divides into facts. There is a discussion about the nature of the world. Can one speak of the world? What is the world when we speak of it in philosophy? And Wittgenstein plays a, a role in that, in this idea that the world is everything that is the case. And then working from this, he develops a position that seeks to describe what is describable. And then this again goes back to what he said at the beginning, which I said was ballsy, kind of saying that he solved all these problems. He also said in that very quote, that secondly, it proves how little all this really does. And so we gain a picture of what this type of philosophy does. In some ways, it serves as a an aid to science in its ability to clarify in society, developing positions and trying to understand what is in fact something of which one might speak and other things that are nonsense. And at the end of the Tractatus, he ends with, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. And this summarizes in a lot of ways what he's getting at and even that larger critique of religion as well as as well as philosophy that oftentimes from this position speaks on topics that really aren't topics that are make believe so i'm going to end the discussion on his lecture on ethics here for those interested wittgenstein's thought is generally separated into the early wittgenstein and the late wittgenstein the text here would fall under the early wittgenstein as far as i understand it the later Wittgenstein rejects or also calls into question a lot of what he asserted in the Tractatus, which might be considered the quintessence of the early Wittgenstein, the Tractatus, that is. For anyone interested in further reading, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus is great for the early Wittgenstein. Uh, this book also had a really wide-reaching impact in philosophy, which makes it worth reading for that fact alone. And just be aware that a lot of this book reads like a, a book on logic. Kind of funny anecdote, I recently heard a German professor say something to the effect that the Tractatus should maybe be understood as a great work of Austrian irony rather than a book on logic. But it's short, I think it's around 80 pages, so it shouldn't take you the whole winter to get through. For the later Wittgenstein, his philosophical investigations are probably the best place to start. And that book has also been quite influential in philosophical circles since its publication, which was actually after his death. Um, a lot of his philosophical works, actually all of them have, outside of the Tractatus, were published uh, following his, his passing, 
which is also an interesting figure that he was quite involved in philosophical thought, but did not actively publish during his life and left that to be published posthumously. Cue the music. <laughs> 